Russia is the only G20 country where the government is not offering uh, direct financial support to citizens and businesses affected by the uh, pandemic and its uh, uh, economic fallout. Dear friends, uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you at uh, another edition of the Forum 2000 online chat. Uh, today, we have the great honor and pleasure of welcoming with us Vladimir Karamurza, a leading uh, Russian opposition figure, uh, a journalist, uh, a longtime uh, colleague of uh, Boris Nemtsov. Uh, he's also somebody who has been a victim of, of uh, Russian persecution. His, uh, his life has been in under threat uh, at least twice by uh, poisoning uh, so it's a great pleasure to having him with us uh, vladimir welcome to the forum 2000 online chat delighted to be here Jakob, and very much look forward to seeing you in person in prague in october uh, so vladimir without further ado uh, how uh, is russia doing these days how is uh, russian government handling the current difficult times with the pandemic well, I think there's no time uh, when you can see the difference between authoritarianism and democracy as, as vividly and as clearly as a time of crisis. Uh, and it is a time of crisis in Russia, as it is across the world because of the pandemic uh, and of the economic consequences of the pandemic. But the reaction to this crisis from the Russian government has been starkly uh, different uh, from the reaction of governments in other developed countries that have democratically elected governments that feel they need to be accountable and responsive to their own citizens. Russia is the only G20 country where the government is not offering uh, direct financial support to citizens and businesses affected by the uh, pandemic and its uh, uh, economic fallout. Um, you know, the Russian government is sitting on nearly $200 billion uh, worth of money in the so-called National Wealth Fund that they have been accumulating for years. And of course, the nature of uh, authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, you know, going back to the old l'état c'est moi, uh, is that they consider, you know, national wealth essentially to be their own pocket and their own wallet. And so the Putin regime has been sitting on this money, um, you know, not willing to, um, to help those most affected uh, by, uh, by this crisis as, as other developed countries have been doing. Uh, believe it or not, uh, Russia's gold and hard currency reserves have actually increased since January, uh, as opposed to fell, because, because again, the Kremlin is sitting on that pile of money refusing to help citizens and businesses affected by the pandemic. And I think it is uh, during times like this uh, when you can see most clearly why uh, a democracy is better for uh, citizens' general welfare than an authoritarian system. I mean, what I'm saying is completely obvious, but I think nevertheless it's important to restate that again and again, uh, that uh, at a time of crisis, this contrast, this difference, between a government that is elected by its people and therefore is responsible to them, and a government that has just been sitting there for 20 years without the need to uh, hold itself accountable through democratic elections because we have no democratic elections in Russia. That difference and that contrast is, I think, as clear uh, as it can ever be. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we are getting similar, uh, similar messages that uh, transparency and accountability play a huge role in, in successfully, successfully handling Handling the crisis. Uh, speaking about about the debt, how how do you think will will the the crisis uh, affect uh, the, the perspectives of Vladimir Putin? Because we know that just before the pandemic, 
uh, a, a constitutional change was passed that uh, essentially enables him to stay in power until 2036. Uh, there is the uh, constitutional plebiscite about to take place in the beginning of uh, of, uh, of July. So, so is there has this uh, plan been changed by by the pandemic? Uh, so, Vladimir Putin, as we as we know, has been in power for 20 years now, a full generation. He's the second longest uh, uh, ruler in in Europe, second only to Alexander Lukashenko, who's the other European dictator. There are only two dictatorships left in Europe nowadays, Russia and Belarus. Um, and Putin was supposedly limited in his constitutional mandate until 2024. That was supposed to be. Um, the year he, he had to leave the Kremlin. Uh, of course, he had already once, uh, you know, kind of went around this um, uh, constitutional limit in 2008 uh, when he had already served two consecutive terms. And then he put um, a, a marionette, essentially a puppet, uh, a placeholder by the name of Dmitry Medvedev to kind of keep the presidential chair warm for four years. Uh, and then he came back uh, once the limit of two consecutive terms was 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 gone around. Uh, you know, Mr. Putin is going to be um, 72 years of age in 2024, and the presidential mandates have been increased now to six years. So that is no longer an option uh, that it would be viable for him. So he um, was looking for another way uh, to circumvent the constitutional limit and remain in power beyond 2024. Um, and as we know, at the beginning of this year, in January, uh, he suddenly announced major constitutional changes uh, in Russia, the most important of which uh, is to waive, essentially, the presidential term limits for himself. So while the limits formally stay in the Constitution, he personally, Vladimir Putin, uh, will be um, excluded from that limitation and will be able to uh, remain in power, as you said, until 2036. Um, and uh, the, originally, the plebiscite to ratify these constitutional changes was scheduled for the 22nd of April. Um, of course, in the midst of a, of a pandemic, uh, the Kremlin felt it had to demonstrate some sort of uh, responsibility, at least formally, and so the plebiscite was postponed. Uh, it is now rescheduled for the 1st of July, um, even though the pandemic uh, is continuing, even though um, not many people trust official uh, Russian government statistics on the number of people who have been infected and who have died, even though people know that, you know, officially uh, Russia is in third place in the world today in terms of coronavirus infections. Um, you know, only a few days ago, one of uh, uh, the most prominent um, opposition figures in Russia, Lev Schlossberg, who is a member of the regional parliament in Pskov, one of the leaders of the Yabloko party, uh, the major liberal party in Russia, has said that in his view, uh, and it's not just his view, it's it's what he sees on the ground in, in his region in Pskov. The official uh, COVID-19 infection statistics in Russia uh, is, um, you know, what we're hearing is at least 10 times lower than the reality. So the official statistics is at least 10 times lower than what the reality is on the ground in terms of infection. So if this is true, then Russia is not in third, but in first place in terms of uh, infections currently in the world. And despite all of this, um, the Putin government is um, rapidly reopening the country, lifting all the quarantine measures in order to hold this so-called plebiscite on the 1st of July uh, to ratify uh, Vladimir Putin's intention to essentially be ruler for life. It's interesting, by the way, maybe somewhat Freudian, that they're using this term plebiscite. I mean, it's a term 
that was, uh, you know, a favored word of European fascist dictatorships in the 1920s and 1930s. They would hold plebiscites. You know, in the normal situation, it would be a referendum. Uh, but they do not want to hold a referendum, and I think for very clear reasons, because they realize they would lose a referendum if it were held. A referendum is something that is codified by the Russian constitution, that is codified by Russian legislation. It would provide for a minimum turnout. It would provide for independent observation, including international observation. It would provide for, for an opportunity to campaign on both sides, for a yes and a no. Um, instead of a referendum, uh, the Kremlin has called this extra-legal plebiscite uh, that has no defined rules, that does not allow for independent observation, that has no minimum turnout, uh, that does not allow the no side to campaign. The yes side is campaigning through all the government resources, as you can imagine, from every TV screen, as we say in Russia, from every uh, you know, refrigerator, you can hear uh, those government messages uh, in support of uh, Putin's amendment. If you're a no side, you have no opportunity to campaign anywhere. And uh, the um, rules they have announced for the actual voting procedure and the vote count and the vote tabulation basically leaves almost no space um, for independent observers to point to instances of manipulation and fraud. You know, there's nothing new in the fact that vote counting in Russian elections is fraudulent. It's, it goes back to the old Stalinist maxim. It's not important how they vote, it's important how we count. But at least in previous instances, because of the work of independent observers, people would know about the fraud. And we all remember the massive protests uh, in the winter of 2011-2012 in Russia, uh, after it became clear that the parliamentary election was heavily uh, manipulated and heavily rigged in favor of Vladimir Putin's party, United Russia. Uh, all the rules that have been created for this so-called plebiscite uh, try to avoid the possibility of independent observers making public uh, the scale of the fraud and the scale of the manipulation. Having said that, nothing uh, is certain. Uh, and I think uh, it is important to watch very carefully what's going to happen in Russia in the next two weeks. Because if you look at the trends in Russian public opinion, uh, it is becoming increasingly difficult for the Kremlin to hide and conceal the growing public sentiment in opposition to Putin's continued rule. Um, it's um, very difficult, I think, to speak about public opinion and opinion polling uh, in a closed authoritarian repressed society where people, first of all, in many cases have no access to objective information because all the major media, especially television channels, are controlled by the government, but also where people in many cases are afraid to state their political opinion to, you know, to somebody who's calling them on the phone or even worse, knocking on their door and asking them, you know, what do you think about Vladimir Putin? What are you going to say to some unknown person you've never seen in your life? So uh, it's, uh, in my view, not very meaningful generally to speak about opinion polling in an, in an authoritarian system. Having said that, however, with all these caveats, if you look uh, at the figures from the Levada Center, which is the last more or less independent reputable polling agency in Russia, you will see, for example, that public confidence in, in Vladimir Putin has plummeted to 25% from 59% three years ago. You will see that on a question of the main constitutional amendment that would waive term limits for Putin will allow him to stay in power until 2036, so essentially for life. On that question, uh, Russian public opinion is split exactly in half. So as many people oppose this amendment as supported, and those are, again, those are the people who are willing to publicly admit that they oppose this amendment. Uh, we don't know what the actual figures are, what the actual reality is. We remember what happened in the um, Moscow city legislature elections last September, in September of 2019, when even after the regime removed most 
genuine opposition candidates from the ballot, as they normally do, in nearly half of the constituencies, in nearly half of the districts in Moscow, pro-regime lawmakers still lost out, in many cases to technical spoilers, so we just put on the ballot to imitate competition. But such is the strength of public opposition to Putin's regime in Russian society, especially in large cities, especially in Moscow, that in many cases people were prepared to vote for absolutely anybody, literally, as long as it's not the candidate put forward by the Putin party. So, and, and all of this, by the way, happened before the pandemic. Uh, and the Levada Center figures that I refer to, uh, the half-half split on Putin's lifetime rule, uh, was also, uh, the survey was conducted before the pandemic. So this is without even taking into account the uh, response, or I should say non-response, uh, by the Kremlin uh, to the plight of Russian citizens and Russian businesses affected uh, by this current situation. So, so is, uh, there, is there a, a realistic possibility that, that the July plebiscite would actually, could actually send a signal to, to, to Vladimir Putin? In a way, well, there is uh, a pretty vigorous debate within the Russian opposition now of what to do and how to behave on the 1st of July. There is some in the Russian opposition who say that we must boycott this vote, vote because it's meaningless, because it's not legal, uh, because it's going to be totally falsified. And all of this is true, by the way. And so for this, for these reasons, many opposition groups, including, for example, Alexei Navalny, who is perhaps the most prominent opposition figure in Russia today, including the Yablako Party, which is the, right, the major liberal party in Russia, have called um, for people to boycott this vote and not to take part in it. On the other hand, many other opposition figures, um, including, for example, uh, Dmitry Gutkov, a uh, former opposition member of the, of the Russian parliament, and, and, and many others, are saying that they would still go and still vote no, just to make it more difficult uh, for the Kremlin, for the authorities to falsify the result, because that way they will need to falsify it if there are many no votes. Uh, I think both of those viewpoints uh, have a right to exist. Both of those, of those viewpoints are based on, on arguments. Um, I personally, maybe it's more emotional than rational, but I personally uh, will probably go and vote no, just to know that at least my ballot will not be put in a yes column five minutes before the polling station is closed uh, for those people who haven't turned out, which is what often happens uh, in Russian elections. You know, I'll never forget, I was a few years ago, I was in the um, Gestapo Museum in, in Cologne, in Germany. Uh, it's a former Gestapo headquarters. Now it's a museum of uh, the documentation center for uh, national socialism. And one of the, um, you know, pieces on display in that museum uh, was a ballot paper from one of the many plebiscites conducted by Hitler in the 1930s. Uh, and the question was, you know, something like, do you love and adore, you know, our Führer Adolf Hitler? Uh, obviously not literally, but that was the meaning. And, and there was a yes and a no. And the ballot was marked no, nine. Uh, and presumably it made its way to the Gestapo, though, maybe trying to find out who it was who voted no, because, you know, why else would it be in a Gestapo museum? But I remember very vividly standing there and looking at that ballot paper and thinking to myself that, you know, that person, uh, whoever he or she was, who went and put that mark, that no on the ballot, you know, many of the things that happened uh, in Germany at that time were not on that person's conscience because he or she went and said no to all of this. And so I think for, for this purely emotional reason, many people will go, uh, many of our colleagues and supporters in the Russian opposition will go on the 1st of July to a polling station take that ballot and vote no and put it in the box. And uh, I will most probably do the same. Uh, but again, having said that, I think both of those viewpoints are, are valid and based on rational argument. But just as uh, in many other 
uh, authoritarian countries in recent memory, including many post-communist authoritarian countries in recent memory. It is going to be more important to watch uh, not what happens during the vote count, but what happens afterwards. We know that in many cases, obvious fraud and large-scale fraud in voting has led uh, to mass popular protests. We saw this in Russia itself in 2011, 2012. We saw this in, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Ukraine, in Armenia, and many, many other uh, countries in our region. And um, as we were talking with you a few minutes ago, it is becoming more and more difficult for the Kremlin, even with their total control over the media, even with the way they fully uh, control the political processes in Russia, to hide and to conceal the growing public sentiment in opposition to Vladimir Putin's continued rule. And so, um, you know, going back to our conversation about Putin's constitutional amendments, we know from recent history that many dictators had very sophisticated plans uh, to kind of, you know, circumvent constitutional processes and, stay, and, and to stay in power. We also know that not all those plans of dictators came true, because otherwise every dictator would stay in power, um, you know, for as long as they're physically alive. And of, of course, we know that is not the case. So uh, if there is one thing that can stop and prevent Putin's plans for lifetime rule, uh, it would be public opposition from Russian society. And I think the main question for the coming weeks and months and years will be how strong um, and how publicly manifesting that public opposition will be. And uh, for a public opposition to be able to to express itself in a meaningful way and to transform its discontent into something new, you usually need a, a political alternative, a political opposition that will be offering a different way forward. How is the Russian opposition looking at the moment? And this, this is my question. You know, you, you may uh, also frame the, the answer with, uh, in the view of the upcoming uh, Duma elections next year, which, which will be, a, I think, sort of a test also for how the political system in Russia is, is working. Yeah, that's, that's a very important question. And actually, it's, uh, it's debatable even if we can use the term opposition with regard to Russia today. I used it myself a few minutes ago uh, because, you know, we operate in normal political language. But um, in uh, one of his last interviews before he was killed, um, Boris Nemtsov said, you know, don't call, don't call me an opposition leader. I'm a dissident. I'm not an opposition leader. Uh, you know, opposition usually sits in... Uh, in parliaments and regional legislatures and in television studios. Uh, we in Russia have no real parliament. We have no real elections. Uh, we have no independent television. So uh, I don't know how uh, proper it would be to even speak about opposition as opposed to dissidents, as, as we had back in the Soviet times. Uh, and as Boris Nemtsov said, he should be called uh, shortly before he was killed. Uh, speaking of Boris Nemtsov, you know, he was the most prominent, the most powerful, the most effective leader of the pro-democracy opposition in Russia. Uh, he was able to organize mass street rallies. He was able to successfully push uh, for international uh, measures of accountability against the Putin regime and its cronies. He was able to win elections, actually, despite all the odds, as he did uh, just about 18 months before he was killed, uh, when he won an election in Yaroslav for the legislature there. Um, he was the most prominent, the most powerful, the most effective leader of the opposition to Vladimir Putin. And in February of 2015, uh, he was gunned down on the bridge in front of the Kremlin, uh, the most high-profile, the most brazen political assassination in the modern history of Russia. Um, and, you know, frankly, um, when the most prominent leader of the opposition can be murdered in the middle of the capital city, and five years on, the organizers and masterminds of his assassination 
are still unidentified and still at large and still not brought before justice. And I think we all understand very well why, um, you know, how meaningful would it be to speak about the opposition or human rights or anything else related to democracy and rule of law. Having said that, uh, we are continuing the best we can. We know that there are millions of people in Russia who fundamentally disagree with the direction that this authoritarian and kleptocratic system is taking our country. There are millions of people in Russia who think that our country deserves better, who want Russia to be a normal, modern, democratic European country. Uh, and it is for the sake of those people that we have to continue our work. And we see that despite the fact uh, that the opposition in most cases is not allowed to contest elections, is not allowed to, uh, to be shown on television, is, you know, in, when it comes out on peaceful rallies, participants are beaten and arrested. Despite this, uh, again, it is becoming more and more difficult for the Kremlin to conceal, to conceal the fact that there are millions of people throughout Russia who oppose this regime fundamentally and who have a different vision for our country. Turning, turning away a little bit from the uh, domestic uh, uh, Russian policy or politics, uh, uh, and this will be a question in conclusion to, uh, to close this, um, I would like to uh, refer to somebody you just spoke about a while ago, Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov was a, a, an important leader of Russian opposition. There, is, there has not been a true replacement for him, the, the, the symbolic uh, relevance of him. Uh, was was an undeniable. Uh, recently, there was a, a square named here in Prague after him in front of the of the Russian embassy. And actually, there was another street in the back of the Russian embassy uh, called after Anna Politkovskaya, another another victim of Putin's Putin's regime. Uh, this, together with some other developments, uh, have recently led to significant deterioration of Czech-Russian relations. Um, there is now, uh, of course, uh, some discussion about how this should be handled. What would be uh, your recommendation and advice to uh, Czech government or other you know, Western democratic governments vis-a-vis -vis current Russia? What, what would, should they do vis-a-vis -vis Vladimir Putin's government? Well, first of all, on, on the first part of your question, uh, I want to take this opportunity to express my deepest gratitude to uh, Mayor Zdenek Rieb uh, and to Prague Municipal Lawmaker Piotr Kutilek, who have initiated uh, the commemoration for Boris Nemtsov in Prague. As you know, four world capitals, uh, Washington, Vilnius, Kiev, and now Prague, have named uh, squares in front of Russian embassies after Boris Nemtsov. And to me, as a Russian politician, to me as a Russian citizen, there can be nothing more pro-Russian than to name a square in front of the Russian embassy after a Russian statesman. Uh, and whatever the people in the Kremlin and the foreign ministry say about this today, whatever hysteria they come up with, uh, I know that one day the Russian state will be proud uh, that our embassies in Washington, in Prague, in Vilnius, in Kiev, and hopefully many other capitals around the world are standing on streets and on squares named after Boris Nemtsov. So that was the first thing I wanted to say, and, and I know I speak on behalf of many people in Russia uh, when I say that we are deeply grateful to the city of Prague for sending this strong message of support and solidarity uh, with the people who are continuing to stand up for democracy and the rule of law in Russia by honoring and commemorating Boris Nemtsov in this meaningful way. Um, and on the second part of your question, I think, frankly, the only answer uh, to it is uh, it's important to stand on principle. We know what appeasement does. We know uh, it from recent, recent 
relatively recent history, we know that in the long term, it never pays off uh, to try to placate a dictator, uh, not to mention the fact that, in my view, such policy would be immoral. And um, we have seen, unfortunately, in, in, in the last two decades that Vladimir Putin has been in power, many Western leaders on both sides of the Atlantic trying to placate and, you know, to use that historical term, appease Vladimir Putin and his dictatorships. We remember in the early years of Putin's rule, when he was consolidating his authoritarian regime inside of our country, when he was shutting down independent television channels, when he was rigging elections, when he was imprisoning his opponents. Uh, and all this at the same time, we, we still saw, you know, American presidents and British prime ministers welcome Putin with open arms and giving him red carpet treatment and holding summits with him. And, um, you know, one day, uh, all of these Western leaders, one day in March of 2014, they woke up to the first territorial annexation in Europe since the end of the Second World War, which is what Vladimir Putin did in, in Crimea. And those two things are directly related because certainly when it comes to Russia, I think that's generally true of any authoritarian regime, but certainly when it comes to Russia, domestic repression and external aggressiveness are two sides of the same coin. And there is no reason to expect a regime that disregards the rights and freedoms of its own people and that breaks its own laws to uh, you know, abide by international norms or respect the interests of other countries. There's no reason for it to. And so I, I think it is very important for uh, the leaders of Western democracies, uh, including, of course, the Czech Republic, to stand on positions of principle uh, and, you know, to draw certain red, red lines in terms of principles that cannot be violated. And, uh, um, and I think it's also very important, uh, as, a, as a kind of a continuation of this policy, to always make a very clear distinction between the Putin regime and the Russian people. Because one of the most offensive and insulting things uh, that we sometimes hear from some Western circles uh, is when people, you know, basically draw an equation between Russia as a whole and this authoritarian clique that is sitting in the Kremlin uh, around Putin. Uh, you know, this basically means acceptance of the Kremlin's own propaganda line. Uh, Vyacheslav Volodin, the current speaker of the Duma, who uh, was until recently Putin's main domestic policy hunter in the Kremlin, once said publicly on the record that there's no Russia without Putin. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anything more insulting about my country and my people. And unfortunately, sometimes some Western politicians kind of accept this line, even those who are against Putin, they accept this line and say, oh, you know, these, those Russians, they can't do any better. They're doomed and destined to live under such regimes, so we have to find a way to speak to those regimes. That, first of all, is insulting, as I said, but secondly, that is not true. Because if you look uh, at the history of Russia uh, over the past century or so, you will see that every time the Russian people actually had an opportunity to freely vote, freely choose between dictatorships, uh, between dictatorship and democracy, they chose democracy. You know, the Duma election in 1906, the Constituent Assembly election in 1917, the Russian presidential election of 1991. Unfortunately, there weren't very many times when the Russian people were able to choose freely, but every time they were, they chose democracy. And so I think it is very important that while uh, Western democracies should continue to stand very firm on principle um, against the Putin regime uh, and its policies of repression at home and aggression abroad. It is also very important that those same Western democracies conduct a policy of outreach and dialogue with Russian people and Russian society. Because, you know, this regime is not forever. Uh, and a day will come when Russia takes her rightful place uh, among modern European democracies. And everything that we do uh, in the Russian opposition aims to bring that day 
just a little bit closer. And I hope that we can continue to maintain that partnership and dialogue uh, with friendly pro-democracy forces across Europe and across the world. Well, let's let's look forward to that day. And uh, thank you very much, Vladimir. It has been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Jakub. Wonderful to speak to you always. And I look forward to seeing you in Prague in October in person. So do I. Take care.